So as I mentioned a moment ago during the welcome, we are launching a new series this morning that I'm calling Real Faith. We're looking at how movies, the movies that we see, might be a lens through which to view the world and maybe, maybe if we look close enough, even a pathway to finding God. And in this series, we're going to look at a different movie each week. Uh, to see how God shows up. Next week, we're going to be talking about Encanto, the new Disney Pixar movie. I hope you have a chance to see that in the next few days. The week after that, we'll be looking at CODA, uh, which is an acronym that means uh, Children of Deaf Adults. The week after that is The Lady in the Van, one that I have not seen, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Shannon Moore will be preaching that week. Uh, And then finally, we'll wrap it up with Just Mercy. Uh, All of these uh, films and dates are listed in the back of your bulletin, so I encourage you, if you can, to watch these movies ahead of time. If not, that's not necessarily necessary, uh, but uh, I encourage you it will be something that might be helpful as you... uh, as we talk about those things. And, and even if you don't, my hope is that if you haven't seen it, by the time we talk about it, that you'll be inspired to go see it after the service and sort of look at it that way. Today we're going to be talking about Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is a documentary about Mr. Rogers. But first, I want you to hear this word from the Apostle Paul that was written to the church in Colossae. Now, Paul was writing to a group of Christians that he had never met in a church that he had never, uh, that he did not found. In fact, the church was created by a colleague, a friend of his by the name of Epaphras, who visited Paul in prison and came to report that his church, his, his community of faith, were doing great. They were doing really well, but mentioned that there were a lot of cultural pressures that were tempting them to turn away from Jesus. There was stuff happening in the midst of the culture that was creating this divide between the culture and their faith. And so, so Paul is writing to them from prison to address some of the issues that Epaphras identified and challenging them to to have a greater devotion in Jesus. And in the section that we'll be reading this morning, uh, we'll be reading, uh, he's telling about this new way of living in Jesus. Challenging to live the way that Jesus inspires them to live. So I invite you to listen now to this word from Colossae. Today's scripture comes from Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Here begins the reading. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved... Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, 
and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So you seen any good movies lately? It's interesting to me how question, how common of a question that is. Easy way to start a conversation, to break the ice in our contemporary world. It seems like watching movies has become as normal of an activity as eating or sleeping or maybe even logging on your computer. Studies show that Americans prior to the pandemic, back in 2018, watched on average somewhere between 25 and 40 movies every year. Obviously, that would shift generationally, but by and large, most people would watch between 20 and 30 movies a year. Interestingly enough, 2018, that very same year, that same study pointed out that 95% of Americans, of adults, had watched at least one movie in that year. Not so surprising, perhaps, is that only 47% of American adults had read at least one book every year. That's another sermon for another time. We'll get to that next week, maybe. But then, in 2020, or 2020, everything changed. And in that summer of 2020, the average American watched 20, mu 20 movies in that summer alone and binged another four. And since then, with, with streaming, with Netflix and Apple TV and Amazon Prime Video and all those things that you subscribe to, the average person is now expected to download and watch between uh, five and six, 5.6 movies and TV shows every week. Spread that out over 52 weeks of the year, that's 292 movies and shows a year over the course of a lifetime, it is anticipated that we will watch close to 5,000 different movies and TV shows. Now, movies are not just a source of entertainment. I want you to think for just a minute about the social impact that movies have on our culture and on us. In fact, the year that Disney produced Bambi, how many people remember Bambi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The year that Bambi came out, deer hunting reduced dramatically in our nation. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be the person that would go out and shoot a deer that year. 1982, when E.T. came out, do you remember E.T.? Sales of Reese's Pieces increased by 68%. How many of us went out and bought Ray-Bans when Tom Cruise wore them in Risky Business? Yes, some of us did. How many of us stopped drinking Merlot after we watched the movie Sideways a few years ago? Pinot Noir sales shot up 44% that year. And perhaps most importantly, this summer, my 20-year-old son has grown a mustache after watching Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> now, on a more serious note, movies function as a primary source of meaning for a lot of people throughout the world. 
along with the church and the synagogue, the mosque. These movies provide people with stories through which we can understand our lives. They have this way of blocking out all of the distractions around us, but also, also calling us to a more attentiveness to life. Have you ever had one of those experiences when you've got a lot going on and you think, I just want to go see a movie so I can just sort of escape my life. And in the course of that hour and a half, two hours, all of a sudden there is a sense of clarity because it brings a sense of attentiveness There's a professor by the name of Robert Johnston at Fuller Seminary who says the fact that movies play an increasingly significant role in defining both ourselves and our society, it seems beyond dispute. He also goes on to say, this seminary professor, that even in the church, theological discussion is more likely to happen following a movie than a sermon. I would like to take issue with that a little bit, but I'm not sure that I can And you know that to be true if you've ever participated in our real religion festival that takes place every year. You see, movies are more than just entertainment. They're more than just a diversion, although they can be all of those things. They are these life stories that help interpret us and are interpreted by us. Now, in 1968, Fred Rogers, who was a Protestant, a Presbyterian minister, started a low-budget TV program at WQED, which is the public broadcasting station in Pittsburgh, that would take off. And it would grow in ways that many people never imagined. And in many ways, I might say, would help raise several generations of Americans. And in 2018, 50 years after it was first launched, Morgan Neville created a documentary that we're talking about today called Won't You Be My Neighbor that looked at Fred's incredible influence on America. Now, how many of you have seen that documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yeah, quite a few of you. Excellent. Excellent. Now, interestingly enough, the trailer for that film debuted on what would have been Fred's 90th birthday and later would premiere at the Sundance Film Festival, and it was later released in that summer as one of those summer releases to incredible acclaim from both critics and also audiences alike. And one of the things that they talked about is not just at the premiere, not just in the theater, but oftentimes when people would gather together to watch, they would find themselves overwhelmed with emotion, and they would weep together. Part of that out of nostalgia longing for their childhood, reconnecting with that child within them, but also because because it was so important today to the world and the way we live in, in this time, and deeply divided in so many ways, when there's so much animosity and bitterness around us, that Mr. Rogers' simple, warm, grandfatherly advice on compassion and love and understanding our neighbors is exactly what our world lacks and so desperately needs. And it showed, it showed that Fred really was just what he seemed to be at first innocent sight. He was this kind-hearted, maybe even a little bit square, but saintly man who genuinely loved and understood children. And of course, that was his main audience, the children, who were home from school and they would sit in front of the TV and have a snack before they got ready to go outside and play or to do their homework. And if you ever remember, 
If you ever watched it, you knew that every episode started the same way. Mr. Rogers would walk onto set, which was his living room, and he would take off his jacket, and he would put on a sweater, and he would take off his dress shoes, and he would put on his sneakers. And as he did that, he would be singing that song that we hope most of us know, because I want you to sing it with me now. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? And then he would end the song by saying, please, won't you be my neighbor? I just want you guys to know that at 9 o'clock, not a single person sang. <laughs> Still mad about that, but I'm glad that you all did it. It was fantastic. A few years ago, a few years ago, there was another movie about Mr. Rogers that came out starring Tom Hanks. This was more of a, a drama type thing. And they, in the movie, they, they showed a, a scene that actually took place when Mr. Rogers was in New York one time on the subway. And some children, some kids, some of them had grown up by this time, but they recognized Mr. Rogers. And this subway car, together, they all start singing that song that we just sang. It was a fascinating movement. The documentary points out that part of the brilliance of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was in its simplicity, but also its authenticity. One of the producers, Margie Whitmire, said, said, take all the elements that make for good TV and then do the exact opposite. And there you have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. There was low production values, there was simple set, there was an unlikely star, but yet, yet it worked because he was saying something important. What's fascinating to me is that Rogers took up important issues that children would hear adults talk about, and maybe they were confused about, maybe they were afraid to ask, and so, so he would help them, help them navigate through the stresses and, and traumas of life. The very first week that the show debuted, midst of 1968, in the midst of news reports that covered the bombings and the deaths in Vietnam. Mr. Rogers explained the meaning of war to children in a way that they could understand. And then later, that very same summer in 1968, he talked about the word using puppets, talked about the word assassination, as the nation wrapped their hearts around the killing of Robert F. Kennedy. In 1969, the next year, the time when there was so much so much going on when blacks were being kicked out of public swimming pools. Mr. Rogers had one of his black friends, a character by the name of Officer Clemens, come and they cooled off and washed their feet together in a kiddie pool as a way of saying this is what it means to be neighbors. He discussed divorce, an, impact that impact, uh, an issue that impacted many American households. In every episode, every episode, he would look right in the camera and he would tell children that they are special, give them a sense of confidence that was oftentimes missing in homes where both parents worked. So like I said, in many ways, in many ways, in his own small way, he raised generations of Americans' children. And as the documentary points out, he was doing something deeply profound he was helping children process life, how to, how to deal with the trauma of being human in the midst of our culture. 
And it worked on multiple levels. It was simple, but it wasn't superficial. It was simple, but it was also deeply profound. Now, I mentioned that he was an ordained minister, that he was seminary trained, but also had a background in child development. And he took all of that, and he created Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And there was two elements of the show, and I don't think I realized until I watched the documentary that these two elements of the show, there was the, the scene there, the set, which was his living room when he would come in and he would change his clothes, he would change his sweater, and then, and then he would talk a little bit, and, and then the trolley would go off on the track through the hole in the wall into the land of make-believe. Now, what's fascinating is that Mr. Rogers never appeared himself in the land of make-believe, that was always the actors and the puppets, all of whom, the puppets, all of whom were played by Mr. Rogers himself. And then at the end, in the end, the trolley would come back, back to the neighborhood, or back to the living room, and he would gather together and help them put it all together and teach them a song that would address whatever it is that they were talking about. In the film, they point out that that neighborhood was a place at times when you might feel worried, when you might feel safe, unsafe, you might feel scared, depending on what was going on around you, but there you knew, you knew that you would be taken care of. It would provide understanding, it would provide safety. That's what the neighborhood was for Fred and so while it was fun, there was a seriousness about what they were doing. It wasn't just play. It wasn't just entertainment. And although he never mentioned God, there was an element of ministry in what he was doing. He was telling children, this is how you should treat each other. This is how you should treat yourself. You see, this idea, this understanding of neighborhood was his understanding of community, about what it means to be a part of something bigger than yourself. One of his good friends was a Presbyterian minister by the name of George Worth, who was at First Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. And in the documentary, George says this. He says, there was this whole spiritual dimension to his work in the TV business. He worked hard to be inclusive without ever identifying himself as a minister. He didn't wear a collar. He wore a sweater. And he preached in that context in a way that was more effective than anything I've ever seen. It wasn't a sermon in an oratorical way. It was a communication that went right into their hearts. You know, if you look at the values that Mr. Rogers represented, it is clear that they are, that they are influenced by his faith. And his Christianity was, was a wide-open Christianity, one that was accepting of, of thinking of other places while never, never departing from the Christian faith itself. His theology was crystal clear. Love your neighbor, love yourself. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Love your neighbor, love yourself. And he saw that communicating that as the most deeply spiritual thing that he could be doing. He once said, love is at the root of everything. In all learning, all parenting, all relationships, love or the lack of it. And who or what we see on the screen, that is who we become. And that's why he would say, week in and week out, I love you just the way you are.
Now, it's important to point out that he was not without his critics. And maybe not at the time, but later. Later, people would look back and see the way that he impacted those generations, and they would criticize him, and they would point out that some say he gave birth to a, a narcissistic society. Laura Ingram once referred to him as an evil, evil man, which I think is a little strong. But they say that, that he told everybody that they were special, that they were important, and by so doing, he destroyed a generation. You see, the criticism, it goes like this, that he told everyone they were special, that you don't have to do anything to earn that. And that, they say, is what's wrong with our country. That's what's wrong with our children today. But see, here's the thing that we need to keep in mind. He wasn't talking about entitlement. He was talking about grace. He was talking about the undeserved, unwarranted love of God that cannot be earned. The foundational notion of Christianity is that everyone, every single one of us has an inherent value that everyone whether you deserve it or not, is a beloved son or daughter of God that you are chosen, that you are created in the very image of God. Now, of course, the problem is if you don't believe that everyone has an inherent value, well, then all of that goes against the fundamental notion of Christianity that we are all beloved children. Fred once said, what changes the world? Simple, he said. The only thing that really ever changes the world is when somebody gets the idea that love can abound and love can be shared. Now, do you remember the text that Randy read a moment ago? Do you remember what he said? Therefore, as God's chosen ones, not because you've earned it, but simply because you are chosen, holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience. And he would go on to say, above all else, clothe yourself with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, as I hear those words, as I hear those words, I can't help but picture this kind, gentle man putting on a sweater, changing his clothes, clothing himself, one who embodied those words, lived them out, and inspired generations to do the same. Now, this weekend is the 4th of July, and we, I want to invite you to join me in pausing to give thanks, to say a prayer of gratitude for our great nation. We aren't perfect. There's no perfect nation in the world. And yes, it's true that we continue to struggle with racism and power grabs, with abuses of the law, but at the end of the day, the fight for freedom for all continues. We continue to struggle and to fight that there may be liberty and justice for all, and hear me when I say all means all. I am proud of our nation. I am proud of our nation for our willingness to wrestle with our struggles, to face our shortcomings, and to work together for a better future for all God's children. And I would suggest that perhaps what our world, what our nation needs most is the inspiration of a man who embodied love, who helped us to see that we are loved as we are, who taught that kindness, humility, patience, 
that these are the pathways to wholeness. You see, that's the gospel according to Mr. Rogers. And as I thought about that this week, I realized that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.